Amen. Our text this morning, as we are in this Mother's Day of 2021, is in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2. Nope, I will not read the entire passage. Can't possibly do that, or you'll be here for a while, but I'm going to uh, reference different scriptures and different things that are going on in those passages. So please uh, just have your Bible open or your app open uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2. And there's just a few things that we can learn that Hannah models for us, and I think that we should emulate as we look at her life. There are many incredible women in the Bible, and especially mothers in the Bible, that we ought to, as God's people, look. They're there in Scripture for a reason. And they're there so that we can see those things that God wants us to live out in the same way as they did in their faith. And there's certainly some great things and a great example that Hannah shows us as to how we ought to live our lives. Now, if you're looking in the scripture, I'm just going to read, for starters, and and the first two verses of 1 Samuel. First two verses. The Bible says this. There was a certain man from Ramatham, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, not Tofu, but Tohu, the son of Zup, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. Uh-oh. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. I'll just start there. Because that's where this that's where this account starts, this story of Hannah starts. And I think that if we watch and we read about Hannah and what's going on in these first two chapters, there are some great things that we can learn. She can show us some incredible things. And the first is simply this if we learn anything, and we'll notice right away as we move into our story, is that Hannah was distressed. Hannah was distressed. Now The reason that Hannah was distressed, and if you read further down, you will read in verse 3 that year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. Now, just for a little reference point, Shiloh was a one of the towns or a place, it was called a high place. And it was called a high place because it was a place where God's people would go and there was a priest there and you could make a sacrifice and worship God there at that altar. And Shiloh was a high place. It was one of those locations among a few others that made it easy for God's people to go in their region and make sacrifices and worship God. You can read that and you can do your own research and I would encourage you, it's actually quite fascinating and interesting how God had set that up for His people. And so they're going there every, uh, every year and regularly to worship and sacrifice. And it says here, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. So Hophni and Phinehas, were, they were commissioned there. That's where their station was, was at, at uh, Shiloh, and they were the priests there. In verse 4, whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. She couldn't have a child. And so here, Elkanah is, I think, out of sympathy, yes, love, but he is giving her a double portion of the meat and all the things that are there. And so he is offering that, he's blessing her in that way, he's loving her that way, and he's 
He's moved. I mean, it's his wife. He's concerned. And, and he knows that she's struggling with this idea of not, and the truth of not having a child. And so Hannah was distressed. And that was really the first reason why Hannah is distressed. Because she was barren. She was barren. Now, for a wife in Israel to not be a mother, to not have a child, was considered an affliction and a dishonor. Now, this is cultural, it's historical, you can do the research. In fact, I would say that in some ways, although this has faded over time, up until the past couple generations, it was kind of a dishonor and an affliction of sorts, if you will, for a woman to not have a mother. Now, of course, I have to just say, because we have to be honest, just as we observe in our world, that it's quite the opposite today. In some certain strange way, unfortunately, it's actually a dishonor and an affliction to have children. At least it's presented that way. And the pressures that be around us, they're all around us. They're, they're here. I mean, we have, we have a negative birth rate going on. And in many countries, and like Japan and other nations, there's a negative birth rate right now. And the idea, and it's understandable. I'm not justifying, but it's understandable. The explanations, it's a tough world. It's a distressing world that we live in, isn't it? I don't want to raise my child in this world. they got to deal with, and you fill in the blanks. And they could be a million things. Some of them are pretty legitimate, I have to admit, to some degree. But, but I do recall something, that when God created Adam and Eve, one of the things that he desired was that they would, and even after the flood, one of the desires that God had was that they would procreate, that there would, would multiply, that there would be children to fill the earth by having children. And so you can understand Hannah's distress at not having a child, especially in that time and in that culture. And so it was an dis- affliction and a dishonor. And motherhood was looked on as a high call for a wife. And I believe it is. There are many calls, but this is a great call for a wife. You know, who wouldn't want and who desires for a woman to not have a child? I mean, ultimately, When they desire that, you wish that for them. You want that for them. But here we go. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6 in your Bible. She's already barren and she's distressed because of the cultural pressure and it's a stigma. But in verse 6, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This is crazy stuff. I mean, it's hard stuff to live in the same roof, under the same roof, and to have this, these attacks happening on you, and to be put down and shamed. I mean, it's really distressing just to hear and read this. Verse 7, this went on year after year. It didn't end. It kept going on and on. And whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord... Her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. That's how intense this was. She's already distressed at the stigma of being barren, not being able to carry a child. But then you come to the second reason why she's distressed. There's a bully in the house. There's a bully in the house. Taunting and and intimidating and bragging. Penina... 
the second wife of Elkanah, she gloried over Hannah and became her adversary. Those are not my words. They're words in Scripture. She became her enemy. She was always there against her. Verses 6 to 7 make that very clear. Hannah's distressed because she's bullied by the mother in the house. Ha! Look at me, I got kids, you don't! Ha ha ha, it sounds childish, but that's what was being done. Can you imagine that? I'm better than you. I got five kids, you got none. Ha ha That is just unbelievable, the pain, the hurt, but just the attitude, the arrogance, the pride, the the, the superiority complex that was going on there. And and Hannah is struggling through this, and she she could have, I mean, I don't know what she would have felt, I mean, what she felt, but she could have, when she felt as distressed as she was, do something to get back at her. I mean, really? I mean, think about it. I don't know what she could have concocted or came up with, but there could have been a plan, but she didn't do that. Now, I want to make a note here about something very, very important. Because some of you might be puzzled, and if you're younger, or even if some of you are adults and you're looking at the Bible, you don't read the Bible much, or you're wondering why it's in the Bible, let me just make a, a, a quick note. God is not endorsing polygamy here. He's not. But he's showing the sinful results of it. And, and I, will be, I will be fair, I will be truthful. We also find in the Old Testament, not in the New, we also find in the Old Testament that God doesn't directly prohibit polygamy. But that doesn't mean he endorses it either. Just want to be clear. He is not endorsing it here. Listen, if you look in the Bible, if you look in history, nearly every time plural men, uh, marriages are mentioned in the Bible, they are shown to have negative consequences. Show me the positive. You show me Solomon, and you explain to me how multiple wives was positive. You show me other characters in the Bible, and you show me that. And here the mother is irritating and provoking the barren woman. And the drama that goes on in these cases. There's favoritism, when you feel like there's favoritism, and the drama, and I can't even imagine. I'll leave it at that. It's not easy. It's distressing because she's barren and because she's bullied for her barrenness. What can we learn? What can we learn right now, right away, in this this second, from this drama that's going on, that applies to you, that applies to me? I mean right now. And I, I can find myself in this story. What do you learn? Here's what you learn. We will all have troubles and distresses in our life. Oh, I know, you might not have to deal with pregnancy, especially if you're a guy, right? You, 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 I mean, you're not going to be carrying a child. That's, that's not going to happen, all right? And, and that's, that's reserved for women who, who become mothers, God willing. We all have troubles. We all have distresses. We're all going to face this in our life and in our distress, for whatever reason it is. Let me ask you another question. In the midst of that distress, are you feeling barren in your life? It doesn't matter if you're a guy or a girl, if you're a man or a woman. Are you feeling barren in your life? You know what I mean? Like, you're doing everything right, 
and, and you're being faithful to God and you're fulfilling your responsibilities that God's given you, and, and, but yet you feel like there is no results, there's no fruit in your life from all that. Do you ever go through those phases in your life? I have, and they're not easy. You feel, you know you're doing the right thing. You're asking God, you're waiting, and it feels like, but there's nothing coming out of it. There's nothing being birthed out of it. And it might be for a year, it might be for a month. I don't know what the season is. But for some of you, you may have been feeling like you've been barren for years. In your distress, God sees you and he knows. He's fully aware. And we're going to have those distresses. And you're grinding through life and you see no fruit. And you're just hoping to see results of your faithfulness to God. I've been there. I know you've been there. How about this? You know what else applies? Have you been or are you bullied because of your barrenness in the midst of your distress? You know, it's not just people. Satan bullies you, the world, the pressures, all the different things all around us, the messaging, it all bullies and presses against us and tells us mixed messages and tells us to do things that are opposed to God. I don't mean, when I say bullied, I don't mean that you're being pushed and prodded along by someone, even if it's forcefully sometimes, to do the right thing. But I'm talking about being taunted being mocked, being put down, being made to feel in fear by someone or something for some reason that's out of your control. Have you been there? What do you do? What do I do in those situations? Well, let me just offer this. We should do as Hannah did. We are talking about her after all. And so even though we know that just like she was distressed, we will have distresses. This is what we do. In her distress and in our distress, we should depend on God. Hannah depended on God in her distress. That's the second thing we've got to take to heart. Now, I'm talking to the choir for a lot of you. And you might say, I already know that. I do that. I've done that. It bears repeating over and over again. You know why? Because distresses will lash at you and come at you. And troubles will come over and over again. And you've got to be reminded. You've got to be encouraged. I've got to be reminded. Keep depending on God. We just heard Proverbs 3. Keep depending on God. Rely on God. And in what ways, in what ways was this evident in Hannah's life? How do we know for sure that Hannah depended on God? Well, verses 10 and verse 15. What did Hannah do in verse 10 and 15? Hannah prayed. Hannah prayed. She prayed. She called out to God. She had a conversation with Him. In all her frustration, in all her distress, in all her just being grief-stricken by all of this. And all of her anger that she was holding inside towards Penina, and she didn't lash out at her. She was giving it all to God. By the way, God isn't afraid when you talk to Him the way it is. He already knows. He's not afraid. He doesn't run away when you talk to Him the way it is. Sometimes we feel guilty for telling God and reminding God, if we will, and expressing to Him the way things really are here and all around us. God's good with that. He welcomes that and He wants that in our distresses. He wants us to depend on Him by calling out to Him. Let me ask you a question. Where do you go first 
when you are distressed in life? Oh, I know the answer. I mean, the church answer. The Christian answer is, well, I call out to God. I lean on God. Really? Really? Maybe. Because I have to admit, sometimes I don't. And I'm glad you always do. Show me how to do it. Let's get together. I, really, encourage me. I'll take it. Because sometimes I don't. But she prayed. She called out to God. Do you take matters into your own hands? Do you tell God how it ought to be and how the job of being the supreme being should be performed? Hannah prayed. I'm reminded of the story of our father of faith. Father Abraham had many sons, and here we are, right? We're his children. By faith, we're connected. He's family. But do you remember? You remember that story as he got older, and as his wife Sarah got older, they couldn't have a child. And they're getting older, and they're like, well, but God, you promised me a child. What's going on here? And on and on, the years go on, and they go on. And Sarah has this idea. Hmm, I'm going to help God out. I'm going to help God out. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And you know what he does? she does? She says, hey, Abram, don't you have a maidservant named uh, Hagar? Let's help God out. Go. Have a child with her. Terrible decision. Because you read about it in, in Genesis chapter 16. And you know what? Again, it's not the most pleasant thing. When you take matters into your own hands, it usually doesn't turn out very well when you leave God out of it or disobey him. Hannah prayed. She didn't take matters into her own hand. And she depended on God and she trusted God and she waited on God all the while. But she also fasted. Look at verse 7. She wanted a child so badly, but she wanted to make sure that she knew and that she heard from God what he wanted, not what she or her flesh wanted, or even though it was good and honorable. She wanted to do what God wanted, not whatever she wanted to do. She fasted. She wouldn't even eat. You know why she didn't even eat? Because she was so distressed in her soul. She had to lay it out to God. And she didn't want to respond in an emotional way or in a, in a Hannah way. She wanted to respond in God's way and wait on Him. She put aside her flesh and put all her attention on spiritual things to focus on God. Verse 7, 10 and 14 also tell us that in her praying and seeking God, she wept and she poured out her soul to God so much that Eli even thought she was drunk because the words were in her heart, but the mouth was just moving and nothing's happening. And it reminds me of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 where he said that when we don't even know what to pray, the Spirit prays in us. There's these groanings and things that are going on. Their words are inutterable sounds that come out. But the Spirit is praying in us when we're distressed or we're in those places where we're not even sure what to pray. God takes over because you depend on Him. Have you ever had that experience? I have. And it's relieving. It's joy-filled because you know that God's with you. You feel Him and His Spirit prays through you even though you're, you're, you're travailing before God. But you know that God sees your soul being poured out. Not only that, in verse 12, it says that she continued to pray. She persevered in prayer. She didn't just give up. And that reminds me of the persistent widow in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. Do you remember her? Another great woman who went to the unrighteous judge, Jesus says, and she wanted justice for exactly what it was. We don't know, but she was treated wrongly and unfairly. And she keeps going, and she keeps going, and she keeps going, and he keeps saying, nah, nah, 
nah, get away from me, no, no justice, no. She never stopped. And she did not stop until finally the unrighteous justice, she's wearing me out because she's coming to me over and over and over again, bearing her soul and telling me what she wants and needs and must have in her life and her distress. And then a judge finally said, I'll give you justice. Don't stop praying. Don't take matters into your own hands. Keep praying and waiting on God. And the Bible says that at the right time, at the appointed time, when the time kept came, she gave birth. She became pregnant and she gave birth eventually, but she became pregnant in the right time. She made a vow. She was so distressed and in her prayer, she made a vow to God. This is what she said. If you bless me with a son, I'll give him to you. Whew, that's a big deal, man. That, think about it, that's a big deal. Now, her husband, Elkanah, has no idea that she's even praying this. Think about that. And then later on, you'll see, for him to just be okay with that, that's, a, that's a, an amazing faith thing there going on. That he trusted God enough. When, he, when she gave her first son, Samuel, back to the Lord, she made a vow. How many of you have, are experts in the if-then prayers? No, not me. No, not you. Of course not. It's that guy over there. It's that woman over there. We're experts at this, even if we don't use the same language of if-then. But we always have these things. We always deal and wheel with God, trying to get something for Him or get us out of trouble, and then as a result, we'll, we'll pay Him back somehow. Right? If-then. Those prayers. If-then. And then God gives us what we ask for. He, the if is done. And then the then part comes in, and we're like, Oh, wait, I forgot. Wait, I'm choosing not to remember what I told you I would do. And we just move on. If-then prayers. Be careful. Be careful. She made a vow. She made a vow. And she said, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. Here's, Here's another thing that we should learn. She depended on God. But even with her vow, she made sure she stayed true to that. And we need to learn another lesson from Hannah. It's that Hannah dedicated her son to God. And we ought to uh, dedicate whatever God gives us in answer to prayer back to him. Will you do it? Have you done it? If then. And when the then time comes, please be like Hannah Listen, she dedicated her son to God in many ways. The first way was that she gave him a name that honored God. She named him Samuel. And in a very simple uh, description of what his name means, it means God heard. God heard me because I asked the Lord for him. But God heard. You know, whatever God gives in answer to your prayer, I'll say it again. Please give it back to God. It's his Give it to Him. Glorify Him through it. Let Him do what He wants with what He's provided for you. She kept her word. If there's one thing in our world, in my own life, because you know what? I'm a promise breaker too. I don't like, I I don't even like saying that because I feel like I should just hide behind here. But we're all promise breakers. Some of us are worse than others. Some of us are better at it than others. But we're all promise breakers, aren't we? 
We, we, we break our word, we break our vows, we break our covenant. We're, we're, all, we're all like that. We do that on different varying levels. We, we, we need help with that. Hannah shows us how important it is to keep our word and to follow through on it. And let me just read something to you that I know and I'm sure that Hannah was familiar with because of the law. In Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 21, Moses is reciting the entire law to God's people. He says, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you. Those are my words. And the Lord your God will surely require it of you. Verse 22, however, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. Verse 23, you shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. Do what you say you're going to do. I do this too. You know one of the worst things and one of the... We want to have, we want, we want to trust people, don't we? We want to, the people that we respect and honor the most, if I could put it that way, is those who are consistent and faithful to their word. I've all, we've all done this. I've done this too. I made a promise. I committed to somebody to do something. And I, I've, I've shared this in other places with other people. And you know this. Some of you might have heard this already. And all of a sudden, something better comes along. And I will do everything I can to break my commitment. Because it's more convenient, it's more, it's more pleasing. It's something, I want to do that more than the other. I can push that off because I want to do this. I'll, I'll make it, no, I'll break, I'll, no. We don't do that kind of thing. When we give our word, we keep our word. We understand that as Christians, don't we? I mean, I need help with that. We all need help with that. In fact, can I just bring it to full light? Because Dave and Deb, Deb mentioned something about those kids in Haiti who were, who were, She's not sure if the younger ones are, are really in relationship with Jesus, a salvation uh, relationship, a saving relationship with him. And that the idea of water baptism. See, water baptism does something. It doesn't save you, but it does do something very powerful. When we baptize, we, we ask questions, right? And other churches, and we do it different, but you're making a proclamation, and there's a, a, you're making a, a public vow that you belong to Jesus and you will serve him. I always ask, we always ask, do you commit to serving him all the days of your life with the help of the Holy Spirit? And, we, and the candidates, they would say, I do. You just gave a word and now you can be held accountable. And that's a good thing. Because that's how it should be. And we should keep each other accountable. We made a promise and we're going to represent Jesus Christ. And now together we should help each other to do that as best as we possibly can. When you make a vow, Hannah knew this, keep your Word. She didn't just bring Samuel when she brought him to the temple, when she got, brought him back to the Lord after she weaned him and brought him back, right? But she provided for him as well. She sacrificed to pay his, well, uh, his way. In verse 24, she brought a bull, flour, and a jug of wine. And not to mention in chapter 2, every year she would bring a little robe that she made for him because he outgrew the other one. And he's got a new robe while he's ministering and serving and learning temple worship with with uh, Eli in the temple there. What a powerful thing that she did to keep that vow. What happened in the end? Look at the beginning of, we're just about done. Look at, look at chapter 2. Look at the first couple verses. In chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, Hannah does something 
that demonstrates that she depends on God and that she dedicated or gave over, she kept her promise to God, the result of that was that she rejoiced or she, she delighted in God. Hannah delighted in God for who he was, what he had done, and that he was faithful to her. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies. Who was her enemy? Penina. Right? There's, there's, there's something implied there. It was one of her enemies. For I delight in your deliverance, she said. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. And then the rest of her prayer there, she talks about how God is just and He's faithful and He does everything perfectly right. What a great thing to delight Him. She praised Him. You know what she was singing? This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior. Right? That's what she would have been singing all the day long. I mean, he's, he's my Savior, my provider. He's everything. I'm praising him every day. And she's worshiping God and glorifying him. In verse 3, she's thanking God because her, her rival is silenced. In verses 6 to 9, she's praising God because he helps the needy. In verses 1 and 7 and 8, she's praising God because he exalts those who are humble. And then in verse 5, there's even a reference to those who are barren. And she thanks God now. They have children. Oh, she's delighted in God. She's praising God with her lips and glorifying the Lord. Praise the Lord. What a great thing. What a great lessons we can learn from Hannah. What's the conclusion of all this? I believe that if we take what we can learn from Hannah, and if we do those things in our lives ourselves, we can look to chapter 2, and if you look further down in your Bible, to one verse there in verse 21, it simply says there that the Lord prospered Hannah. She took the one son that she had and gave him to God. Do you know what she got in return? Five other kids. <laughs> she got three boys and two girls. She got blessed. She was blessed when she did. She kept her word. She depended on God. In her distress, she called out. And she was delighting in the Lord. And now the Lord just blesses her with this offspring. When you do these things like Hannah, God will prosper you too. No, it's not a magic formula. And he's not gonna, you're not going to have your million-dollar mansion with an in-ground pool that's heated to 80 degrees every day. No, I'm not talking about that. God's going to prosper you. You're going to flourish however God sees fit when you take all these lessons and these principles that Hannah lived by, you will be rewarded by God however He deems best. All the time. What a great example we have as we go today. Mothers, children, fathers, parents, grandparents, all of us, if we would just model what this godly mother did and how she lived, we would be so much better off. And so blessed. Amen. Lord, thank you for the life of Hannah. Thank you, Lord, for the example that Scripture documents for us and, and shows us and, and teaches how we ought to live. Help us, Lord, to emulate her. And Father, I just pray, Lord, your blessing on all the mothers again. Protect them. May your peace fill their lives. May your joy overflow from their hearts. And Father, I pray they would flourish and prosper in you as you bless them, Lord God. 
Help them, Lord, to constantly depend on you and to rely on you as their protector, their provider, and their power. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Happy Mother's Day, mothers. God bless you. Let's be like Hannah. Amen.